Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin. I don't know if you know the show. You know I really like movies a lot. I watch a lot of movies in Oscar season. I try to make sure that I've seen all the nominees I have this year. I've seen all 10 Oscar nominees for Best Picture. And then we try to combine that with some commentary. What we're going to do this year is different. We're going to replay some of the conversations that we had on the nose. And film actor Ileana Douglas and I are going to have kind of a running conversation. So... I hope you like movies because we're going to talk about them a whole lot. I'm here with Ileana Douglas, who's kind of co-hosting the show with me this year. It's an Oscar show. We're looking forward towards a Sunday night's Oscars and backwards towards all the conversations we had over the year. But Ileana, we should say there are some changes to the Oscars this year. One thing that they're doing is they're, they're taking eight categories and not putting them on television. I believe the awards will be given out in the hour that precedes the beginning of the live telecast and then maybe little clips from those awards. And these aren't small categories, right? It's editing and production design. It's like stuff that really determines a lot of what we think about a movie. You know, the biggest issue for me is in looking to get a younger, this is what they claim. They want to get a younger audience. The show's too long. But you risk, of course, alienating the core audience of, you know, the movie misfits that really watch the Oscars for the editing and the hair and makeup and and all of those categories. And the other thing is it completely screws up my Oscar pool. How can you, for God's sakes, those are those are always the categories where I can clean up. On a serious note, I'm just out here living in Connecticut now, but I was shocked. You know, this idea got shut down a couple years ago, and I'm very surprised that it did not get shut down again, because I just think I just think it's a bad idea. You can't say that one category like the actors are more important and more worthy of being on television I, I just disagree with that. But the problem for me is that the Oscars are trying to become like the People's Choice Award. And there is a People's Choice Award. Like mm. That is an award show. So my feeling is you can't be funny and entertaining and get a younger audience and also be the Oscars. You can't. The Oscars had a brand, and that brand is excellence in films. And so some of the things that have crept in, Oscar fan favorite, you know, I just think it it just turns art, it reduces art into, you know, America's Got Talent or The Masked Singer. And it's it strikes a false note for me. And I'm surprised that more people of note have not complained about this. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I one thing that I noticed too. Sometimes to get ready for one of our shows, I'll listen to a couple of film podcasts, of which there are more and more. And the people who do those things, you know, they're really they are total film nerds, and they often look at things very much in terms of editing and production design and stuff like that. I listen to a, I mean, I don't even know how you talk about the new West Side Story without talking about editing and particularly production design. And on these podcasts, I'll listen to these people talk about lens flares for like you know twenty minutes or something. And I think you. Right, that some of the people who watch the Oscars are watching it because they actually are interested in movies. And then the other thing that, of course, they always do typically at the Oscars is since they realize that three quarters of the audience doesn't maybe even get this, they'll do a little kind of mini documentary about, well, here's what editing is. (laughs) They do it every year, and it's always like. The one, the movie with and Thelma Schoonmaker used to cut, used to joke that the movie that had the most cuts in it always won best editing because people think that's what editing is. I mean, you, the more cuts you have, the better edited it is. You know, same thing. Uh, production design. If it's old timey, that must be harder to do than a movie like Licorice Pizza. Right. Okay, so I'm not an Oscar voter like Ileana Douglas. If I were an Oscar voter, I would very, very much be tempted, I think, to cast my best picture vote for West Side Story. I realize there are risks associated with taking a a screen classic from 1961 and making a new version of it. I thought Spielberg and Tony Kushner did an amazing job with it. Here's the conversation we had with Rebecca Castellani, Sam Hadleman, and Steve Metcalf. I just want to remind everybody that when this project was announced, like over two years ago, you know, first of all, you had all the people who said, well, gee, you can't remake the 1961 movie because it's definitive and it's perfect and it can't be improved upon, which of course was ridiculous, but a lot of people said that. And then they said, well, and if you're going to make another West Side Story, you know, let's not have it be directed by a 70-year-old Jewish guy who's never done a musical before, you know, and then quintessentially the woke police were criticizing this movie before a frame was even shot. In fact, before it was even cast, criticizing it because it couldn't possibly be authentic enough or, you know, sort of uh, true enough to the, to the various elements that, that are part of it. And, and so you had everybody basically, I mean, very few people were saying, Oh my God, this is great. I can't, I can't wait to see it. And interestingly enough, here we are. And after this movie came out in the theaters in December, you know, let's be honest, most of that chorus kind of fell silent because, frankly, the movie is great. It is a great movie. It is a movie that is certainly faithful to the intentions and hopes and dreams of its creators. And and I think it basically exceeded everybody's expectation. Uh, I'm, I'm with you all the way on that. You know, it's interesting, Rebecca, that he says, you know, that the woke police were on high alert uh, about its possible failure to check the right boxes in terms of social justice, social consciousness, inclusion and stuff like that. But there, another thing happened, which was the minute people saw like in the opening sequence, we see kind of New York, but we see rubble. We see this almost kind of post-apocalyptic look of an area. And then there's a little bit of a pullback and you see this sign. It's the future 
home of Lincoln Center. And, yeah. there, and, and there was another chorus of, oh, it's going to be woke. Tony Kushner's <laughs> going to introduce all these social. So you can't win, right? One way or no. another, you're going to hit a tripwire. No, you can't win. But I think it managed to produce a, a modern movie that fixed some of the obvious racist issues with the original, despite being a wonderful film, it is definitely problematic. And I think that the way that was to me the most successful part of the movie. I, I loved the interjection of Spanish. I love that it wasn't subtitled. I thought the casting was great for the most part. So I think that that was honestly to me the most successful part. And I, I still really liked the movie. I don't want to. I don't want to say that I disliked it, but I think I figured out what my issue with this is, and that is that I don't think I really like movie musicals. And I think that the original, there was so much about it that felt like watching a musical on stage. I mean, it's very theatrical. The lighting is very theatrical. You're very conscious of the set. You're very conscious of the sort of, you know, typical music, awkward transition into song. And this very much felt like a Spielberg movie and that it's beautiful. It was natural. The transitions into the music were natural. And to me, that just doesn't really feel like a musical. And I guess that like that's maybe just a personal problem I have with that specific genre. So I found myself sort of being detached from the movie in between the songs that I was obviously so excited to hear again. I don't know. So that was kind of my takeaway from it. So, Sam, I'm just curious because, in fact, you do come to this as a relative innocent about musicals. I, I don't know. Where did this all leave you? I mean, in a way, this isn't a good on-ramp. I mean, this is, you know, this is sort of probably would be better to watch five musicals or movie musicals <laughs> first and then get to West Side Story. But I, I don't know. Does this make you kind of a little bit more excited about the form? It took me like 20 minutes. I was like sitting there. I was like, oh, my God, if I see one more guy twirl with flippy hair, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> but like once I stopped being so crass, I was like, oh, this is kind of nice. Like they're just describing their emotions in song. I can get with this. And you know what I really loved about this movie is that it looked so old, but like authentically old, like the colors, the vibrance of them, the outfits, the style, the neighborhood like it didn't feel like an old movie a new movie trying to be old it just felt like old and i really enjoyed it i i would watch a musical like that again definitely tony give me the gun call off the rumble it's mine it's yours fellas does it look to you like this is his gun all right let's get some beer and some weed and let's go to the zoo like the old days huh yeah i will if you will you know me, brother. I don't look back. Why, well, you afraid of what you're gonna see? No, I look ahead. I wanna be prepared in case they come prepared. So give me the gun, Tony. I mean it, now. Boy, boy, crazy boy. Get cool, boy. Got a rocket in your pocket. Keep coolie cool, boy. Don't get hot, cause man, you've got some high times ahead. Take it slow, and daddy-o, you can live it up and time good. Let's talk about Ansel Elgort for a second. Uh, he is uh, stepping into the shoes of Richard Beamer. I was not a fan of Richard Beamer. I think he's actually one of the weak parts of the 61 movie. I, I thought Elgort was an improvement. I don't think he's still quite the Tony we want, but, but he came a lot closer in, in a lot of ways. But what was your reaction? Yeah, I was met on Elgort. I felt compared to everybody else, he certainly had the most identifiably weaker singing voice. But more egregiously, I just felt that he was kind of had a flat affect. Like I, when he was in the emotional scenes, I could see him acting emotion, 
but I was obviously very aware of that. I just think I don't really love Ansel Elgort generally. Like, I don't think there's anything, maybe with the exception of Baby Driver, that I've really loved him in. So I think it's maybe just my personal issue more than anything else. But I agree. I don't think Beamer was a standout either. And I would love if they ever do this movie again to see someone really nail the role of Tony and bring like the pathos that I think sometimes the character is missing. Like he just kind of gets the like the hunk treatment without it kind of really getting into the emotional pull so much. So I, I would like to see someone else take on the role in the future and see what they do with it. So Metcalf, we should talk just a little bit. I mean, uh, this is, well, we should talk a little bit about Spielberg's style, you know, and, and we know that if he has to choose between bright colors and subdued colors, He's probably going to choose bright colors a lot of the time, but maybe not the incredible floral palette that we got from Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins. But if he has a choice between bright lights and dim lights, between a sunny day and a cloudy night, you know, he's going to go towards some of those brighter options. My sense was like taking America down off the rooftops into the streets on a sunny day was really a great choice. I've heard people say, nah, too much. And and the choreography is too much. There's just so much going on in the choreography of some of these big numbers that you can't see any of it. I don't know. I didn't really have that problem. I, I think I understand that criticism, though. Well, let me just say when I was watching the other day and we came to America, and and as you as you point out in the sixty one movie, it takes place up on a dimly lit rooftop. Now it's down on the street. When I watched that number, I had to stop and rewind it and watch again because it just it just <laughs> completely bowled me over. And I and I realized watching it the second time, there's this lovely little moment where toward the end, a group of children who are just gathered on mm-hmm. the sidewalk, kind of see what's going on and they run in and insert themselves into the dance in this in this charming kind of way which was certainly not in the in the in the original film and i have to also say this is not exactly i guess what you were aiming at but i have to also say you know jerry robbins jerome robbins who did the original choreography of course and it was spectacular choreography the likes of which nobody <clears throat> had ever really seen this uh, you know this this new set of choreography by justin peck does not try to top that in any way, and it certainly doesn't try to imitate it. And yet it it all works, you know, in a way that that seems kind of right and natural and and in a and in a funny way, kind of modern even. So uh, uh, America is just one example, I would say, of the numbers in this movie that that uh, you know are respectful of the old tradition and and pay homage to it in a certain way but are completely reimagined in a way that's that's thrilling. I mean, that that is the most thrilling number in the movie. Yeah, although the gym dance is close, and people are going to talk forever about the behind-the-bleachers shot, and there's sort of a reverse Wizard of Oz thing that happens where it kind of goes from from loveliness to kind of when they're interrupted and awareness of where they really are. One, the one takeaway I would want everybody listening to have, and then I'm going to very quickly bring one thing up with Rebecca, is – there's no way in the world that you should only you should watch only one of these two movies. Don't just watch the Spielberg. Don't just watch the Robert Wise Jerome Robbins one. You got to watch them both because they just each one has things that the other can't really get at because of the stylistic differences. Now, Rebecca, there's one thing that one area of interesting division is the character of Riff, played here by Mike Feist, who a lot of people on social media are sort of clamoring for and saying he should have been up for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar. He wasn't, I wasn't 
entirely thrilled with him. I mean, I, I can see what's great about him, but he's kind of scrawny. I don't know. I just, I just miss Russ Tamblin somehow. <laughs> but, I, but you're younger than I. I don't know. How, how, did, how did this riff work for you? No, I completely agree with you. I thought he was pretty forgettable. I think that a lot of the Jets look very similar and yes. just sort of all seemed like one character and Riff was just the mouthpiece of the character, but wasn't the same Riff, like that identity that the Wise film has. So yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. I was kind of mad on him too. I just, I felt that the women really stole the show across the board here. And we should really just close up by saying Rita Moreno is a goddess. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, she looks phenomenal. Her voice sounds great. I love that they gave her someday. I mean, it was just... Wonderful. The Jets are coming out on top tonight. We're gonna watch Bernardo drop tonight. Okay, we'll take a quick break here, and God willing, we will be back right after the proverbial this. We'll be in back of you, boy, right? We're gonna flatten them good, right? Warm the tone, spur the word. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome to our kind of end of the film year Oscars show. I will also encourage you to consider something that I've been involved with now for many, many years, more years than I can really think of and count, but I think sometime in the 90s, my friend Peter Shapiro and I created an Oscar party in Hartford to support, at the time, shelters for people with AIDS. Since then, the party has grown and morphed and changed and become even bigger in some ways. It's now called the Red, Red Carpet Experience 2022. It's run by AIDS Connecticut, an organization that didn't even exist when we started the party. But this year will be virtual again. And I don't know, Carolyn Payne and I are going to be shooting some little video clips that will go in there and you can get food. Just go on their site, AIDS Connecticut, Red Carpet Experience 2022. Think about doing that. So, Ileana, we were talking about the modifications done with the Oscars this year. There's also three different hosts, all of them, in fact, worthy people, Amy Schumer, Regina Hall, and Wanda Sykes. But they're doing this weird thing where they're letting people vote in these kind of 
misshapen, weirdly formed categories, right? Oh. There's sort of an Oscar favorite, and then there's a, a what they call a cheer or cheers moment where it's, Oscar cheer moment. Yeah, get it right, right. get it right. Yeah, and I, I don't even understand what that. I mean, it doesn't even seem to be confined to 2021 movies <laughs> either. It's no. just like stuff you liked, right? Because the thing is, it sounds dangerously close to the MTV Awards. You know, when they would do Best Kiss and, you you know, they would make fun of, they were almost satirizing the films. And you get the impression that this came out of a marketing research meeting, you know, straight from the pages of market research. Guy comes out with a piece of paper. We're going to call it Oscar cheer moment. It's going to make everybody feel good. A moment that we all can get behind and cheer. You know, but it's it's so strange and vague. And I know a couple of years ago, again, the Oscars wanted to name a category best popular picture. That was going to be the category. It's like, why don't you just say we want to give it to the movie? Just call it straight with movie that made most money Oscar. Like, that's it. Right. The other term that gets used, and I think J.K. Simmons used it this year, is popcorn movie. Now, the truth is, popcorn eating is not restricted to, I mean, I probably eat popcorn watching Schindler's List. I mean, popcorn doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, some kind of uh, high gloss, popular, you know, lowest common denominator movie. But yeah, I think a lot of this dates back to the year that Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight did not get nominated. This is before we understood that every third movie was going to be a Batman movie. But, you know, back in those days, it was like, oh, here's this really great movie. And it's, you know, it's not getting any attention for the awards. And and, and since then, they've sort of been overcorrecting, right? <laughs> now they're just yeah. sort of put a hashtag on something and just vote on Twitter and that'll get something. Yeah, but it, again, you can't have both. It can't be the Oscars can't be the classy Oscars and also have an Oscar cheer moment. They, they just can't. That's the MTV Awards, you know? That's the People's Choice Awards. And I think that that, that to me is where, you know, again, where they're, they're making a mistake. You know, my, my fear is, does a filmmaker then fall into this idea that they have to make a cheer moment in their <laughs> film? What is a cheer moment? How is that defined? So the fans that vote on Twitter, are they really the fans or is it a core group? Like I'm a movie fan. No one's a bigger movie fan than me. You know, I'm a true fan of movies, but we're going to leave it up to Twitter. Yeah, there are some movies which I feel like maybe could have benefited from somebody saying, hey, do we have a cheer movement uh, moment anywhere in here? Is there a cheer moment? Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, let me just throw to a conversation about one of them. That would that would be Dune. Look, I love Dune. I read the books when I was, you know, in high school or something or maybe college. Yeah. And I, I certainly saw the David Lynch version and I watched this thing. Dune feels to me like the exposition for the 2023 Dune movie, which is to come. But we did talk about it in October with Heldra Mira and Irene Papoulis. Here's a little bit of that conversation. This is the 
first film we've done for the nose since we went into pandemic mode where I really, really felt bad about not seeing it on a big screen. I think this might be one of these movies that only makes sense on a big screen. But to that end, Irene, you know, one of the reasons this movie maybe doesn't contain some of the Hero's Quest stuff that you remember from the book is that it's only half the book. I mean, it's a pretty long movie, but it really is mostly exposition. You know, it's sort of the buildup to the story of the hero's quest. So I'm wondering if, if maybe that's kind of a problem for you. <laughs> Davey, to, to an extent, but part of the problem also is that was before I, I didn't really under, you know, now that, you know, I'm very well steeped in feminist theory, et cetera, et cetera. So I see the hero's quest quite differently now than I did. And I used to, I think I would just, I identified with the male hero, but also to an extent as a woman watching, I wanted to be with the male hero. And that was like a real desire you know so so i can't help but have a part of my brain saying like okay so he's the hero that's going to save everything and the women even though his mother is very powerful and everything there's you know he he's the guy and i'm not as fond of that journey as maybe i once was you know i actually have to agree about the visual spectacle you know when i saw the way that they de- he depicted the worm i that really like sort of touched a neuron in my brain. And I said, wow, that's exactly how I imagined it looking in the dunes with the worm coming through the dunes and everything. I thought that was fantastic. And I also wish I had seen it in a movie theater. But the idea that we're going to be colonizers, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We're still going to colonize, but we're going to be good colonizers in, in contrast to the bad colonizers. I, I got stuck in, in resistance to that to that idea that in a way that sort of got in the way of my appreciation of the rest of the movie, I have to say. You know, I, was, I, I couldn't I couldn't take it seriously in a way as, you know, as a quest. Can I jump in and just Please. like totally second what you just said? Because watching this version, I completely agree. Like the way they build him up, uh, Paul specifically as this, like just basically the Messiah to come and save. And in the context of all that's been happening in the world and, you know, having grown up much like to what you're saying, like realizing it and revisiting it in this context and seeing just this like white Anglo force coming down to this planet where the Fremen are at least in this film, thankfully are are represented by people of color and seeing that kind of like white colonizer coming in and even his own, like Paul's own trying to be like, well, we're going to do better, but like recognizing all my leftist friends that are always like, no, we can do this better if we organize it like this and help the people. And just always seeing that like, oh, wait, white savior. Like it just really watching this film in this context was an extra bit of joy that was removed for me and enjoying the sci-fi. Whereas I did actually appreciate how much story they put into that and build it. What does it mean? That I could be the one. You had. itself as powerful partners to the great houses but there's more to it you steer the politics of the imperium from the shadows i know you don't know everything for thousands of years we've been carefully crossing bloodlines to bring forth the one a mind powerful enough to bridge space and time into a better future. We think he's very close now. Some believe he's here. 
all part of the plan. The like hand zimmer over the top, just so pretentious, like soundtrack that runs throughout the course of this film in these moments of like, like it's so over over like stressful like it's it's anxiety inducing how over produced the soundtrack is and that just adds to like the almost unexpected comical nature of it that it's like this is way too serious bro take it down a notch you got an 11 please bring it down about 25 percent you know helder shared with us a, a tweet about how humorless this movie is i mean it really the, the tone of voice that you hear there is very, very typical about this movie. I don't know. That's almost not a mode we're in anymore. Like everything, everything's kind of serial comic these days. Everything has some little wrinkle of irony, but it's just not there. No, it's not. And and I think, you know, as a mother, I was sort of watching this very differently as a mother than I would have as a, as a younger person and a mother of a son. And so, you know, just that feeling that the mother says, you know, no, you can be the, you can bend space and time, you know, and it's up to me to sort of tr- train you to do that. And I have to, you know, I'm going to be upset because you're going to suffer, but I have to do it because I'm your mother and I want you to succeed. And that whole edge on it is, I think, kind of hilarious because of in real life, you know, we might want to do that, but you just can't do that. And the way that this mother can do it and his response to it also is almost made me laugh. Yeah. You know, in that sense, it's unintentionally funny. It's it's sort of weird because I mean, it's almost unintentionally funny also in the sense that, you know, Paul Atreides, the, the protagonist here, he's kind of He's kind of a typical teenager. Like, he doesn't want to do a lot of stuff he's supposed to do. And, like, one of the early scenes, you know, one of his fighting trainers is trying to get him to wake up and train for fighting. And he's like, I don't really want to do it. It's like Napoleon Dynamite or something. He's just kind of, I don't, I don't really feel like it. I don't really tire. <laughs> it's, it's like he's this, he's this moody, I, annoying teenager. Well, I mean, Irene, that must have awakened some some familiar yes, moments and, for you, right? And I actually wrote down the quote. I saw it somewhere. I'm not. He, you know, he says, "I'm not in the mood to fight," and the trainer says, "What's mood? You fight when it's time to." You know, and and that that it's really you know you can't. It's very hard to win that battle as a parent. You know. Um, <laughs> And right, you know, I don't think the story invites us to have that attitude, but this movie kind of does. So I guess one of the real questions, I mean, I was really shocked when the movie ended. I mean, it's a long movie, but I was shocked at how little had been accomplished, really. And Helder, you sort of wonder about that. I mean, people, I don't mean to categorize you, but, you know, you you love this (laughs) genre and you, I think, are willing to ride out some complexities and difficulties of the genre in order to get to material that you care about. But, you know, for the average audience member, I mean, you know, just sort of cutting it off right where they cut it off and and then saying, well, you know, I mean, as, as they released the thing, they didn't even really have a clear green light to do the second half of it. They have since announced that they are definitely doing that. I think that's the part that actually gets me, Colin, is the fact that I was hoping and I was under the impression knowing that he Villeneuve has always wanted to do this as a two part or multi part film. I didn't realize he hadn't actually like finished filming the second part and to like mm-hmm. see part one pop up being like wait you hadn't even planned for that part <laughs> what the mm-hmm. hell and then i'd heard about the ending of the kind of like cliffhanger ending it really was like a lot of build up you get this like weird game of thrones almost happening where it's like yep we got betrayed and then you know there's a whole bunch of things a lot of the main characters that you've come to like and i'm glad that they get to flesh out characters like 
Josh Brolin's character, Gurney and Duncan Idaho, which I think is a fabulous name. I don't know why everybody's getting getting down on it, but getting to see Duncan Idaho really like own the film and his roles in the film as portrayed by Jason Momoa, one of the few like hearty characters. It was to me, I was really into it and I was enthralled and like enjoying the film. I'd also right. like to say that Duncan Idaho is certainly no worse a name than Mace Windu or, you know, a exactly. lot of other Duncan Idaho, I, I agree, has kind of a nice, you know, weird permanence to it. So one thing we should say before we run out of time is one of the other controversies here is there is a female character who's sort of a counterpart to Paul, and she's played in this by Zendaya, except that Irene we kind of only see her <laughs> fleetingly. We get we get glimpses. They should say, like in the credits, and glimpses of Zendaya. <laughs> I absolutely agree. I, well, I was waiting and waiting and waiting for more of that. And now I have to wait till 2023, which is supposedly <laughs> when the next movie's coming out, you know? And by then, uh, you know, we probably will have forgotten about the cliffhanger. 2023 is a long time to wait to, to get to see more of Zendaya. And because there's so much, there's so much, there's so many hints but why are there just hints? Why didn't they have more of her in this? What do you think? Was this a deliberate choice or? I think it's a deliberate choice. I mean, I'm hoping we get much more build up, much more character development between the two. And we see her actually mature as the character in the sequel or in the second part. I did actually, in addition to Jason Momoa, when we have no like humor for a while, we do kind of get a little bit of her like teenage snark at the end, which I liked. I liked that she was giving back to Paul what, what he uh, was kind of like losing in the sense of like being so emo and she's kind of like playing off of that a little bit. Um, All right. But we wanted more. We yeah. de- we definitely I, wanted more. All right. So yeah. we, we probably have to stop there. I would also just quickly close by saying there's some other really terrific actors in the here. Often they are so made up as to be unrecognizable. I mean, Stellan Skarsgård as uh, the Baron, uh, the only way that I knew it was him was kind of from his voice. And at times you kind oh, of- that's who that was? <laughs> you kind of want to see the face of people too. I mean, putting Charlotte Rampling behind uh. a veil. Like I want to see Charlotte Rampling's face. I, I know the character probably calls for a veil. All right. Well, we have to go. Uh, We have to take a break. Also, I have a dental appointment with Dr. Yue after the show, so I'm kind of concerned about that. He's going to put a poison tooth in my mouth. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We're back. I am here with this year's co-host. We we sort of moved into a much more glamorous age here on our Oscar show. We certainly have never had an Oscar voter before and a movie star and a TV star, but Ileana Douglas, who is all of those things, is joining us. Our technical producer, as always, is Kat Pastor. The producer of this episode is Jonathan McNichol, who is doing a lot of work behind. He is getting the editing uh, Oscar for this particular show. He'll be piecing together all kinds of different things. So thanks in particular to him. So I'm still here with Ileana Douglas who is co-hosting kind of with me this year, although in different locations, which raises the question. Yes, you do live in Connecticut now. So what what are you going to do on Oscar night? Are you going to, first of all, I assume you will watch the telecast. I will watch the telecast. I'll be like everyone else in in shock and awe at the uh, Oscar fan favorite and the Oscar cheer moment. Your party sounds pretty amazing. I want to tune into that. Normally when I was in back in LA, 
my buddy Phil Rosenthal used to have, uh, uh, who does the Everybody Feed Phil show, he used to have a big, we would have a big Oscar pool and we'd always watch the Oscars. So, but this year, I'll probably just be solo. I was shocked. Just let's talk about a couple of the surprises. No, no love for James Bond. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, I do think that, you know, I mean, James Bond was traditionally maybe the ultimate popcorn movie if you look at the entire yeah. history of it. But but I do feel that the Daniel Craig era, you know, he yeah. and the director that he worked with moved this into, like, I think it was the first one, the first of the Daniel Craig ones, it was almost like an Ibsen play or something. It was very much about self-discovery. Who am I really? What are my family? Skyfall, I think, is the one I'm thinking of. But, yeah. you know, who? where do I come from? Who am I? These are not yeah. questions that we typically imagine that James Bond uh, of the Sean Connery or Roger Moore era worried about. So, yeah, there's a way in which, uh, with Craig, it verged toward being more of an art film. So, yeah, I, I would agree. I assume that's what you're saying in terms of surprise. Yes. I, I was surprised. I was very surprised. I, I thought he maybe would have had a chance. And also, in terms of fan favorites, Edgar Wright's film Last Night in Soho, I thought was a terrific film. Very innovative, and I thought that was a very interesting yet overlooked film. And uh, aside from some of the foreign films, I, I, I've told every it, my favorite film of the year was The Worst Person in the World. That's my personal favorite film of the year. I, I really enjoyed that. Right, that's a Norwegian movie, and I, um, it certainly has incredible buzz. I mean, everybody who talks about it kind of talks the way you're talking. I absolutely love it. I've seen the film twice. It definitely holds up. There was another movie I really enjoyed called Bergman Island. That was very kind of independent. I thought Spencer was very interesting. Did you see Spencer? I did. I did. And and I mean, I not only saw Spencer, but I watched season four of The Crown in close proximity. (laughs) So, I mean, I feel like I got a pretty good dose of it. Yes, I I actually did. I could understand people not liking Spencer because it also, you know, moves away from being, I think, a credible, I mean, for example, I think The Crown attempts anyway behind Peter Morgan to be a credible representation maybe of what this family is like. This is so much more focused on Diana and on Kristen Stewart's remarkable performance on the bulimia and on the just a sense of dissociation, right? It's it's a it's yeah. a sort of a magical realist movie in a lot of ways. And and that I think it tries to mirror her sense that reality is slipping away from her. It's not it's not just the observable stuff to the rest of us, that there's some kind of inner thing that's going on. And I thought they did that very well. For me, I have to say Nightmare Alley for me was a bit of a miss. For me, I feel bad saying that. I thought it was too graphic and over the top. I love the original Nightmare Alley. I love Bradley Cooper, but I it was too graphic for me. Well, let's throw to our conversation about Nightmare Alley. I would say this is Guillermo del Toro directing. It is about as on the nose a recreation of 30s and 40s noir as you could do at this moment. Our conversation included Teresa Kramer, Irene Papoulos, and a special surprise, in fact, one of um, Ileana's neighbors, I think, Bill Griffith, the creator of Zippy the Pinhead, a lover of the world of carnies and sideshows. And so Bill joined us to talk about all that.
How do you ever get a guy to geek? Oh, I ain't gonna crap you up. It ain't easy. You gotta pick up a broken drunk, a real alky, a two-bottle-a-day full seat. Pick him up from where? Nightmare alleys, train tracks, flap houses, you name it. You tell them, I got a little job for you. It's a temporary job. Make sure you emphasize that. Just temporary until we get ourselves another gig. You spike it with that opium tincture. One drop per bottle. That's all. But oh, oh, now, this is what he thinks is happening. So you say to him like this, you say to him, well, I got to get me a real geek. He says, ain't I doing okay? You say, like crap, you're doing okay. You can't draw a real crowd faking a geek, you're through. He's thinking about sobering up, getting the crawling shakes, screaming, terrors. Then you throw in the chicken. He'll geek. Poor soul. The original film starred Tyrone Power and Joan Blondell, 1947, based on a 1946 book by the author William Lindsay Gresham. It was Tyrone Power's effort to break away from his swashbuckling movies and do something darker. It uh, didn't make a lot of money. It was not a flop, but it wasn't a big hit, but it has been a cult classic ever since it first appeared. Irene Papoulos, what did this film say to you? Well, I loved the whole noir vibe of it. And once we got to Kate Blanchett, I was really, really hooked. Her as a like very, very classic noir, but therapist and the whole psychological Freudian images and suggestions and stuff, I just thought were fantastic. And she just pulled that role off, I thought, so beautifully. That's what pulled me in. And all the acting was so fantastic and fun. To me, one of the more spectacular performances in the film is David Strathairn, who plays a guy kind of mm. kind of at the end of his career as somebody who, who does cold reads on crowds. He's able to figure out who somebody is on very scant evidence. I mean, I think the, the entire membrane between the fake, the long con, the short con and psychotherapy is always kind of a thin mem membrane. You see it also in House of Games, where Lindsay Krauss plays a, a psychiatrist drawn into the world uh, of con men and women. So yeah, but Teresa yeah. Kramer, where are your thoughts going about this? I thought it was interesting. In, in terms of Guillermo del Toro's work, I think it's probably my favorite, just because although his movies are often beautiful, I don't really find myself all that interested in them. This one got me just from my love of carny folk and sideshows in general and the and the sort of interest I I have there one of the great surprises to me of this was like I in the second half of the movie I was like what city are they in and eventually it's revealed to be Buffalo and I was shocked I was absolutely shocked but why where would you have put it where would you I have thought it was, was? going to be New York or Chicago it just looked so really glamorous and art deco and one of the yeah. really beautiful things about this movie are the period sets and you know of course the carnival is its own thing but then when you move on to the second half of the movie and you just get like the most beautiful stunning architecture of that period first of all there's a lot to say about the art direction <laughs> i think which is amazing but there's also a way in which i, I think the carney 
is kind of depicted as its own world hived off mm -hmm. from everything else. In fact, I think the conversation we played in that clip about how do you get a geek is right after they've dropped the dead or dying geek off on, on the street mm -hmm. in the rain. And and I think in that conversation, Willem Dafoe has said something about, you know, that guy in Germany, the guy who looks like Chaplin, he just invaded Poland. So mm -hmm. that's their understanding of the rest of the world. <laughs> Hitler... <laughs> is the guy who looks like Chaplin. They haven't even really learned his name yet or anything like that. He's invaded Poland, so it's probably time to learn his name. But there's a sense in which this is kind of its own reality. You don't really need to know anything else about the outside world besides what you need to take advantage of the people who come in there from it. So, Bill, first of all, I'm just curious to know whether you liked this or not and, and, and how it departed or didn't from the original. I give it five stars for art direction. Willem Dafoe was incredible. I did not buy Bradley Cooper at all. He seemed opaque compared to Tyrone Power. Tyrone Power, of course, is a classic, you know, A-list actor from the 40s. So, you know, he's handsome and he's, uh, you know, very photographable. But in the original movie, his character is clearly two things, super ambitious and super delusional both together, which of course often do pair with each other. I did not get that from Bradley Cooper. Only maybe halfway into the film did he, did he achieve any state of psychological interest for me. And I, I thought his, literally his face, there was no feeling, no emotion going on for most of the movie until the end. So I, really? I, I don't buy into an actor unless their, their emotions are displayed on their face in tight close-ups. His tight close-ups to me were opaque and expressionless. I mean, I I felt I'd say almost the opposite. I mean, I didn't see the original. I now this makes me want to see the original, but I felt like he had his earnest. You know, there was a certain kind of earnestness that, in a way, didn't make sense for who he was trying to be. But it was very. But I felt like it kept coming out. The earnest, like, no, this is going to really work. We're going to make this work. I'm going to, you know, this is going to work. It's going to be okay. That kind of earnestness I felt on his face all the time. And maybe especially, you said the second half, but yeah, once Kate Blanchett got, got involved in it, that seemed even more so. You know, there was just this, like, he didn't want to give up hope. How did you know I had a pistol? I can read a mark quick, find out what they want. And I'm a mark, am I? What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Is that it? Think out things that most people want, hit them where they live. Health, wealth, love. Find out what they're afraid of and sell it back to them. As long as you don't oversell it. You want to know how I knew about the gun? I removed the blindfold, both for dramatic effect and to get a rise out of the audience, but also to see the way you held your clutch, elbow bent forward, clutch was heavy. And you lifted it with your left, no wedding ring, no tan mark, unmarried, so. You like to go out at night, you were to Copa, so you got the bees, but I assume you like to go to lower places too, don't you? If I want mud on my skirt, I can find it. Well, you live alone. No man in the house. You gotta have a gun at home, but you assume yourself to be a lady, so not a big pipe, something small, portable, 22, 25, four, six shot maybe, and since you like pretty things, nickel-plated ivory handle. A little bit of Sherlock Holmes, a little bit of Dr. House, uh, all in there. You know, I mean, Teresa, one of the things I, I was struck by by this, and, and I think it's a current that runs through a lot of noir from the 30s and 40s, and also movies like Freaks, to which this owes at least some debt, probably, 
there's kind of a, a stern moral streak to this, right? I mean, it's a different kind of morality than the one that maybe exists in the in the more straight world. But there's there's a sense that there are rules. You don't break the rules. You break the rules. You pay the price, and that the rules do have some kind of moral force. I don't know. Did you pick up on any of that? Yeah, I definitely did. I mean, I think the code among the, I don't know if we want to call them spiritualists or mentalists, or they kind of cross back and forth between between those two. It feels a little bit like, you know, they keep referring to it as like the sort of spiritualist side of it as like being a spook show, right? Like you don't want to pretend to be talking to someone's dead loved one. And it feels as though most people think that's a little exploitative, which is funny because of course, the sideshow is all about exploiting the rubes, so-called rubes who come to come to watch it. But with the sort of mentalist stuff and the mind reading stuff, that's just a show that makes people wonder, oh, wow, how'd they do that? As opposed to makes them honestly believe in some sort of ability to communicate with the people they've lost that they love. Yeah. And I think also there's this sense, Bill, that the carnival has its own kind of magic, you know, and, and it's you have to kind of honor the magic. You can't just use it any way you want. And if you misuse it, you pay some kind of price. I don't know. Am I reading too much in there? No, I think you're right. But there's another thing you have to, uh, you, you brought up this moral issue um, in sideshows of the past, you know, the old sideshows when they were displaying handicapped people as well as flame eaters and, and uh, people who, who hammered nails into their heads. They were like a family. They felt apart from society and therefore that they were creating their own society, that they were a kind of family. They protected each other, especially the weaker members. So in the, in the carnival, in the sideshow depicted in both movies, you get the feeling that, that the family aspect of all the carnival and sideshow performers is in the forefront, that they're there to, to help each other and protect each other. This is Colin McEnroe. Ordinarily, we would be doing a regular edition of The Nose today, but for various reasons, we're not. But also joining me to make it feel even more like a glamorous party is movie star and television star Ileana Douglas, just back from Canada shooting a movie up there. And so just, I don't know. I mean, you see a lot of movies. You're an Oscar voter. You can't tell anybody who you voted for or what you voted for. But I don't know. How did you feel about movies this year? Well, I thought there were a little bit all over. First year for me, couldn't see any movies in the theater. Personally, for me, some of my favorite films were the foreign films. I really love Drive My Car, Hand of God, Worst Person in the World, Parallel Mothers. Thought those were all terrific films. I'll tell you something interesting, because again, when you watch a movie by yourself, and I don't read reviews, that is the best way to watch a movie so if you're watching a movie like for instance house of gucci i see mauricio got married oh god some pimp oh jeez i can't even say her name well sooner or later you're gonna 
No, no, yes. no, no. Mauricio and our history. History. No, come on. Oh, I you are old. Mauricio is your only son. He is your true legacy. You don't bring him back into the fold. Well, maybe. I'm telling you, you'll only wind up being a bitter and lonely old man. Hmm. That's what happens to all of us. Time will tell, but... Yeah, when did you last touch him, Mark? <laughs> when did you last touch him? You don't touch anybody. You used to touch every once in a while. Now you, what, touch yourself? And I watched it, right, and I thought it was, I loved it. Like, if there was a category for over-the-top acting, that, <laughs> that we would have definitely, there, I was having such a good time. I mean, when you're watching a movie and Al Pacino gives the most subtle performance in the film, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a movie for me. And so I was shocked. You know, to read afterwards, oh, okay, it didn't get such great reviews. So it is fun to watch a movie and then look at public opinion. And for me, I don't want to name, but for me, my movie going this year did not align at all with the most popular films. I, I do want to say about the over-the-top acting, I haven't seen House yeah. of Gucci yet. I, that privilege has not oh, been mine. But must. anybody who wants to compete in the over-the-top acting category is going to have to compete with the absolutely delightful, probably my favorite performance that anybody gave all year that I saw, Bradley Cooper as John Peters in <laughs> Licorice Pizza, which is very over-the-top, but boy, I just, I had so much fun watching that. See that Daytona Ferrari? Yeah. Yeah, that's mine. Gary, that's filled with gas. That's gonna get me to the movies on time. Cause I'm not a dead idiot. I'm John Peters. My only problem in life is that I love tail too much. I love it. I love it so much. I love it so much. Is that your sister? No. Is your girlfriend? No. I love it so much it's going to kill me one day. Yeah, I really enjoyed Licorice Pizza. On the second viewing, because I watched it twice, I didn't like it as much. So it was more like a, a like listening to a song that you think you really like, <laughs> but then when you hear it again, you, you didn't like it as much. But yeah, that was, I always thought he was going to pull off a Best Supporting nomination for that. Right, you know, for I, that probably, his screen time is probably about six, seven, eight minutes, but boy, they are great. With that in mind, let's just throw to a little bit of the conversation that we did have on the show about Licorice okay. Pizza. It is uh, the work of Paul Thomas Anderson. If you're a cool film nerd, you call him PTA. And we talked about this very much coming-of-age movie, the kind of movie you make when you're uh, an acclaimed director and you turn 50 and you're thinking about your own youth. And we talked about all of that with Tanisha Dugan, James Hanley, and Tracy Wu Fastenberg. What is strange about it is that certainly through the trailer and, and its publicity, it's being sold as a film which is really like a quirky teenage film that would appeal to young people. But actually, I mean, I, I think it's a really intense and serious film in many ways. It has funny incidents in it, but there's a sort of incipient flying apart of the characters that is going on the whole time that doesn't feel like a comedy and it doesn't feel like something that's reassuring in any way. I should preface that by saying I really like the film, but it's not what it seems to be. It's really interesting in terms of Paul Thomas Anderson and what he tries to explore, which is never right at the surface, never really clear. 
and then you go into it more and you start to explore the characters. It's kind of rewarding as a, as a film in that way. Yeah, there's a way in which Paul Thomas Anderson never travels the straight line that is the shortest distance between two points. He's not just not going to, he doesn't have that in him. He's just the wavy lines right. all, all the way. And so, Tanisha, for me, I get to the end of this movie and I thought, I really enjoyed this movie, but I'm not sure on what basis. Kind of to James's point, like, is it a really funny movie? Not exactly, but it's funny. Is it a real penetrating movie? Yeah, kind of. Uh, but I don't even know how you feel about this movie and I'm dying to know. It, it is it is a movie about nothing, but about something. Um, I think if you are a PTA fan, I think this is a movie for you. I think if you're not a film buff, it sort of is like, cool. You know, it's like, this is cool. The, you know, the colors are cool. You know, maybe I would have liked to live in Southern California. You know, th there's nothing particularly offense. Well, let me walk that back. <laughs> it is it is middlingly offensive in the ways that, you know, you assume the 1970s to be. I think I'm wondering why this movie was nominated other than the people making it, why it's being nominated for a, an Oscar. That's a, a fair question. Tracy, there's, you know, I thought of you watching this movie for one or two reasons. But, there, you know, everything that we've talked about so far, I think, emphasizes what could be a problem with the movie, which is that it's not funny enough to really qualify as a pure comedy. And then they kind of go out on certain limbs. And there's one that I'm guessing you might be kind of eager or dreading to talk about. And that is a character played by John Michael Higgins. He is the owner of a Japanese restaurant. He has a series of Japanese wives who apparently don't really exactly speak English, but he doesn't speak Japanese at all and addresses them in kind of this pigeon English. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, it's funny because he's an idiot. But to get away with that kind of funny, you really kind of have to be making a movie about funny Isn't idiots. Funny? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Either it is or it isn't. But, but Tracy, I mean, there's a way in which to get away with it, you'd have to be making a movie about funny idiots, which I don't think this movie is. No, it definitely felt like a, let's throw this in. And I'm not sure whether it was because hey, let's sort of highlight, you know, how racist it was back in the 70s and how it was okay to be that way. And look, we've we've come somewhat of a ways, but it, it felt like it didn't feel connected to anything else in the movie as far as theme or anything like that. And I sat there cringing, like I actually hugged a pillow going, really, they did this? And I mean, it's, it's probably not uncommon at all from the 70s and 80s and 90s and, you know, until very recently, but I didn't think it was particularly necessary. I don't think it added anything to the film except to kind of be a bit of a throwaway. And like you said, it's not a comedy. So it couldn't even be used as an excuse that, oh, we were adding something funny. It was something very cringy instead. We should say that, he, that he's actually playing a real life person named Jerry Frick, who did open the Mikado Hotel and Restaurant. I don't know if he had the particular quirk that we see there. But um, <laughs> so, Tracy, I, 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 what I didn't do was sort of take your temperature on the movie itself. I think I have a sense <laughs> what the thermometer reading is, but, but give it to us anyway. I think I'm in the same camp as Tanisha, where it was like, it was fine. I, I don't really understand why it was nominated because I didn't think it you know, was, it's, I don't think it's the same caliber as some of the other nominees. I didn't think it was funny. And I didn't realize it had actually been touted as a comedy. And it seemed, yeah, it was a little meandering, a little 
frantic in some parts. And I actually didn't feel like we got to know the characters super well. I feel like we got to know Alana better, but the rest of them were pretty surface level. There wasn't a whole lot of evolution in them. And I mean, visually fun to watch, you know, it's, it's kind of a throwback. It's kind of fun, but I'm not sure I'd watch it again. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, yeah, I think, you know, James, there's ways in which I don't like movies that evoke other movies that much, although I thought that the way that this one did was kind of interesting. I mean, you're sort of seeing the same San Fernando Valley that you see in Boogie Nights. There's at least one moment in this movie that is so intentionally evocative of American graffiti that it's almost impossible to miss, I would think. And there's a way in which I think the film does something that other movies do which is kind of veer off into these little mini adventures. There's that little mini adventure with the Sean Penn character on the motorcycle out in the desert. There's a, another mini adventure that is complicated and involves, and involves the hilarious Bradley Cooper character of John Peters. And there's this, there's that kind of sense of, wow, you get home from that adventure and you're a little out of breath and you're, you're really glad it didn't become more disastrous than it was. And I, I think the movie, to the extent that it has things that hook us, it, that's a little bit of it. Right. Yes, absolutely. I think the John Peters thing, actually, which seemed to be pretty close to how he was described by a lot of people, that was a sort of another movie in a way. It belonged in another kind of movie. It's sort of, I don't know, maybe Mel Brooks or something, you know, that, that um, it was an entertaining interlude, but was totally disconnected from the film. I mean, it didn't help the character development in any way. And I think it's kind of contributed to the impression I had too, was, which was that this was like a can full of episodes that had been building and sort of been put together in a script for a long time. And they were, you know, they were kind of ideas for a movie. And the only uniting factor, I think, is the character of Alana, who is really interesting and could go somewhere more than the film actually took it. But the film really feels like a meander through somebody's box of, of ideas. And it's certainly not as concentrated as Paul Thomas Anderson's other films. I think that sometimes there, there's an intellectual engagement that is, just isn't it, it present in this one. And it makes me think about what was he trying to do with it? I mean, it's funny in parts, but then it's tragic. And then it's like, really, what are you saying? And then it has the racist implications. And is that funny or not? And it's like a, a, a mess, really, I would say. So how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. It's my calling. <sighs> I don't know how to do anything else. It's what I'm meant to do. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been a song and dance Come man. on. Ever since you were a kid, song and dance man. Where are your parents? My mom works for me. Oh, of course she does. Yes, she does that in my public sense. relations company. In your public relations company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent too. <laughs> well, no, I'm not a secret agent. <laughs> That's funny. Tracy, I want to talk just a little bit about these leads, too. So, I mean, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son looks a lot like him, but he also looks like a 15-year-old kid with really bad skin and, and funny-looking teeth. And, and Alana Haim is, 
I think the camera kind of wants to follow her around because she doesn't look like a conventional movie star, but she's really intriguing. And I, I feel I want to see the quantitative analysis of this movie. I feel like I saw a lot of Hoffman close ups and not that many Alana close ups. But maybe I just think that because I wanted to see more of her or maybe it's something the PTA and his crew did in the editing bay where they realized it, there would be something fun about us kind of wanting there's something about her that it's very, very hard to quantify, but th- these are very unusual leads. That's all. They are. And because I wouldn't say Alana is, you know, conventionally beautiful, but there's something very striking about her, whether it's her mannerisms or something, you know, and you feel somewhat attracted to her and the way she moves, the way she talks. Cooper Hoffman, yeah, he definitely feels that awkward somewhat doughy, adorable, you know, not quite a man yet, definitely feeling the hormonal changes of things. But the one thing we haven't talked about yet with the two of them is there is a 10 year age difference between the characters and the actors as well. And this is, you know, she's 25, he's 15, 16 next month at one point. And, um, and it feels like it's never really addressed. It kind of is in the fact that she's interested in, in world events and, you know, figuring out what to do for her career where he's 15 and, you know, is always hustling. But those are romantic interests that are, that's the thread through this movie. And she dates one of his friends. And so there's just sort of this, like, it doesn't really get addressed that there's this 25 year old woman who is more than once attracted to a younger teenager, which nowadays would be there might be some legal implications there. And I, and I don't know whether it was a commentary like 70s was just a lot more open or it was just thrown in there. Tanisha, I wondered, I, I read it a slightly different way, maybe, which is that, you know, the, the Cooper Hoffman character, Gary Valentine, he's, first of all, he reminds me so much of Max in, in Rushmore. They are both hustlers trying to act older than they, they really are. They are both lusting after inappropriately older women, but kind of tr- acting as though they were kind of equals and peers of these women. But I don't know. It's maybe a 15-year-old guy kind of saying, what can I get? Can I open a waterbed business? Can I open a pinball business? Can I have sex with this woman who's 10 years older than I am or at least get her to perform at least some kind of sexual act on me. <laughs> There's one in particular that is that is discussed a little bit. But, you know, it's sort of like that. What can I get? Where am I? And I don't know whether that's a specifically guy thing, but it is a guy thing, right? Guys are trying to figure out what does my current state of maleness entitle me to? I think that may be true. I think I think you're onto something about, you know, his kind of entrepreneurialism, his also being a part of the entertainment industry since he was a kid. And so there's a little bit of aging up that happens and maturity that happens in working inside of the entertainment business as a young person. You know, I think, you know, for me, Tracy, the kind of arbitrary age line means a lot less to me than where the human being is. And I think part of that shift is like, I have a neurodivergent child, right? My child is five, but he is not five, right? And I think we look at a character like Cooper who is 15 and he's not quite 15. His experience suggests he is, he is more in the world than an, another 15, right? My One of my favorite, Dave Chappelle, who may or may not be canceled at this point, I don't know, no. uh, sketches is, you know, what is 15 really? And I would also say, you know, Alana is 25, but I don't think she's, you know, as as we learn, you know, in relationship to her family, she's, she's not as accomplished. She's not as mature. She's not as far along in her life. And so the arbitrary 
age gap means less to me looking at these two characters. I'll tell you what, we're, Ileana and I are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to get you going with a bunch of other movies that we're talked about this year on The Nose. We'll be back. Blood in the streets in the town of New Haven. Blood stains the roofs and the palm trees of Venice. Blood in my love in the terrible summer. Hi, well, I'm here with Ileana Douglas, who's kind of co-hosting the show with me this year. It's an Oscar show. We're looking forward towards a Sunday night's Oscars and backwards towards all the conversations we had over the year. Another movie we talked about, and if you are in the same Oscar pool as Ileana Douglas and you don't want to lose the way you usually do, and you want to go with a safe choice... I would suggest for Best Picture just penciling in The Power of the Dog. I'm not guaranteeing you that it's going to win, but it is the safest choice probably. Uh, we t- did talk about The Power of the Dog with James Hanley and Tracy Wu Fastenberg in December. Here's a little bit of that conversation. Well, Timer, what is it? What's in the noodle? Well, it's... it's about his nibs, the governor. All right. And, uh, well, it's not so much about his nibs, but uh, his nibs' wife, actually. Uh, I was thinking his nibs probably wouldn't mind so much, but his missus might. What, for dear Christ's sake? Well, it's sort of a hard thing to say. Uh, she might mind if you come to the table without a wash-up. So, James, I'm, I'm first of all guessing you saw this on a big screen, knowing your predilections, and I envy you. I mean, I don't really have the guts to go watch a movie on a big screen right now. I bet it's great. Well, actually, yes, I did see it on a big screen. If there was one film this year I wanted to be sure and see on a big screen, that was it. And as it happened, I got one of the last seats in the theater and we were watching maybe four rows back in a theater with a very wide screen. And it really, it's something, it's an intense film to begin with, but seeing it on the big screen, it just was extraordinary. And I think that it was a reminder that, Cinema in that in that format, a widescreen format in a large theater, is something that is quite a different animal from anything else. All right, so let's uh, swing over to you, Tracy Wu Fastenberg. I mean, just give me your kind of overall sense of this film. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. I'm not typically, and you read the description, I'm not typically a stereotypical Western fan, but it was so much more than that just the cinematography of it, the pace of it. It's not a movie that you can sit and do other things while you're watching. It requires your attention because there are so many little hints and little nuances and just really beautiful visual moments as well. And I loved how simple yet complex the characters were. You know, you kind of get this idea that, okay, okay, it's two brothers who are cowboys. There's a nice one, there's a mean one. There's this widow, there's her son but each one has just so many dimensions to it. And it's not always through the dialogue that you get to see it. It's through their actions, it's through visuals. And there are just so many moments throughout that that just 
lend themselves to capturing your attention. First of all, I think it's a great point that you're making about the way the dialogue isn't necessarily the primary revelatory medium for this movie. I think, Tracy, that would be especially true of Dunst's character, Rose, who doesn't really get very many opportunities to explain herself. This is not particularly a, a spoiler, but you know, she's one of the people who gets bullied by Phil, the Cumberbatch character, and kind of descends into an alcoholic haze as a way of coping with that and other terrible things that have happened to her in her life. And yet, you know, I mean, if you're going to understand Rose, I think you're correct. You have to watch Rose as opposed to listen mm-hmm. to what she says. Every step of the way, absolutely. And even the way that they make her appear physically, you know, whether she's put together or slightly more unkempt, her clothing, just everything gives you that sense, that feeling rather than just listening to her. And you can almost feel it in your body as she deteriorates a little bit just by looking at her and her expressions and mannerisms. Yeah. So, James, maybe we could sort of put this in a little bit of uh, Jane Campion context. This is her first big screen movie in 12 years. She's done other projects in that time. Some people have drawn comparisons to the work of Terrence Malick, particularly Days of Heaven. But it also resembles Jane Campion's work. I mean, in particular, she likes movies where pianos are brought into very wild settings. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I think she has this kind of interesting, both in the piano and this movie, this kind of sense of, of the tension, too, between a wild place, which is by implication, you know, wide open, too, in a lot of ways, and then the kind of claustrophobic setting within that wild place. I think this movie has some of the same tensions that I remember distantly from the piano. Yeah, that's a very good description, actually, the, the tensions. It's the way the tensions are expressed. And in the piano, I think, the piano sort of represented something that was a communication, a means of communication. It was something that conveyed the whole theme of the emotions that were being developed. Holly Hunter's character, who is really hard to understand at first, and the piano is a means of understanding her. And in The, the Power of the Dog, it is actually sort of observational. You're watching lots of clues, but you also have the extraordinary music soundtrack. I think it's Johnny Greenwood did the music for the film, that that contains lots of clues. And what is going on in Jane Campion's films really is delving into what the hidden motivations are and what these characters, there are lots of ways of looking beneath an apparent character in in literature or in film. And you can look at their actions. You can you can see where they come from in terms of their connections in the film. But there's something that is very special to Jane Campion, which is actually exploring the motivations and getting you under the skin of these characters without you realizing some of the time. And I think that's one of the keys to Power of the Dog, where Benedict Cumberbatch's character is so intensely burning with something. It's a burning hatred, is it is of himself? What has happened to him? You wonder about the dirt and the, the sort of visceral celebration of some of the most skin-crawling things that he does. And I think that Jane Campion has, a, has an extraordinary ability to bring those things in in a way that gets under your skin before you realize it. And you begin to be drawn into the film and the dialogue, going back to the dialogue, the dialogue is almost unimportant at that point. You got any boots? Yes. You should wear them. 
Don't let your mom make a sissy of you. Do many of the calves die from wolves? There's always a few that get tore up or hamstrung or die of anthrax. Call it black leg. You know, you talk like a big troll of record. You know that? No. I didn't know. Yeah, well, you do. Tracy, we should say a little bit about this this young actor, Cody Smith McPhee, who it turns out has been around, spent most of his life being a young actor. And although I wouldn't necessarily have been able to spit out his name, this is obviously the kind of movie that will will make him a very familiar person. I don't know. Give me your takeaways from his performance. I thought it was fantastic. You know, his his physicality lends him lends itself to this character to begin with. His mannerisms, his expressions, facial expressions, everything just sort of gave you a rich idea of who he was or who you think he is and who he wants you to think he is. And I loved the juxtaposition of certain things like him creating those beautiful paper flowers at the beginning to then dissecting an animal later. Just sort of these very different visuals of him and him enjoying it. And he's so cerebral and intelligent and he's very self-aware. He, you know, he's aware of that he's a little unique, a little different, and he doesn't really seem to care. It bothers him to some extent at the beginning, but he seems to really toughen up towards the end. And just seeing that develop with the actor is was really enjoyable to watch. He manages to create the ethos around that character. First of all, effeminacy and delicacy. And the implication is that he's going to be a victim and I think that's one of the ideas that Jane Campion has always played with, who is a victim and who is not, and who is a capable of defending themselves. And the stereotype, of course, of effeminacy and, and uh, somebody who's gay and may, it, it, the, the stereotype is that they're weak and they're going to be bullied and destroyed. And that actually that's not always the case, that this is something that there are implications in his character that he knows who he is and he likes who he is and he doesn't conform to the stereotypes of that this is delicacy or this is something that he's really feminine and then he's clashing with a, a man who clearly has sexual issues undercurrents that he's not comfortable with and they immediately know it about each other and they 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 come together in repeated clashes in the film that start out subtle and then become very direct and very much on the surface and it's a, an extraordinary exploration of the the nature of sexual identity and the nature of who can be a victim and what is bullying and 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 you, how do you defend against bullying? All of these things are sort of a cascade of consequences of these interaction of these characters. And he, uh, Cody Smith McPhee, is extraordinary in his portrayal of sort of one type, one stereotype in some ways of a young man who seems effeminate. And on the other hand, is the astounding, towering insecurity of Benedict Cumberbatch's character mm -hmm. and how he expresses that and is so vicious and such an in, in, intolerable bully, and yet he is so weak. And it's just an extraordinary thing. And it's the very bullying, it's the very fear of his own identity, which has made him weak.
movie is The Power of the Dog. It is available right now on Netflix. I think we all agree you're in for something very, very interesting. One of the really memorable 2021 films. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about more. We're back. I am here with this year's co-host. We, we've sort of moved into a much more glamorous age here on our Oscar show. We certainly have never had an Oscar voter before and a movie star and a TV star, but Ileana Douglas, who is all of those things, is joining us. And so, yeah, I mean, we've covered a lot of the things that I was hoping that we could talk about. I'm going to throw in just a second to Drive My Car, but Drive My Car is a really interesting movie. And interesting. First of all, I thought that Saab should, should have gotten nominated for something, you know? There you go. Yeah. That would have been... And the list of new bad ideas that Oscar <laughs> could have the best car. Right. It would be. Not since Chitty Chitty Bang Bang have I really seen a car really take control of a movie the way this does. It's actually a terrific movie and, and a beautiful and, and kind of thoughtful and deeply Japanese movie. It's Drive My Car. We talked about it recently with Tanisha Duke and James Hanley and Tracy Wu Fastenberg. This is the first uh, Japanese movie ever nominated for Best Picture in the Oscars. It tells the story uh, mainly of an actor, a 50-ish actor, who is dealing with two tragedies in his own life. I'm trying not to spoil too much here. (laughs) But after the more recent of those tragedies, he does wind up in Hiroshima to direct an unusual production of Uncle Vanya. He is assigned a driver a young woman who is going to show for him around in his beloved Red Saab Turbo 900. It's a 1987. Well, Tanisha, get us going. One thing that the other three of us were sort of commiserating about is it's hard, I think, to really fully participate in this film if you don't have some kind of clear relationship with Chekhov generally and probably specifically Uncle Vanya. And since you're the the mega theater person here, you may be the one who has to help us out with this. But I just love your, your immediate reaction to the movie. Well, I have to say, I think I may disappoint you because I don't necessarily think you need to have a a love of Chekhov or a deep knowing of Uncle Vanya. But I do think you have to have an appreciation for actors mm-hmm. and how they move and think through life because you spend a lot of time in the room. And what we mean by that is like in the rehearsal room or in performance, you you, you spend a fair amount of time in this movie sort of in the mechanics of acting. I mean, there were, you know, the director uses a technique for like working through text that made me think of, you know, the classes that I'm teaching right now. It's very sort of like acting class formats in, in a lot of ways. Stop. What do you think? I think the director should be the one to judge. Terrible. Hidoi. I agree with you. I feel like we both did better during the auditions. Hmm. 
Do you know why? Um, because I've learned a little bit of the dialogue, so I use my partner like my acting cues. But if I don't learn the dialogue, I can't act. Okay. And I thought that this way I could um, pay more attention to other people's emotions. If I learned the dialogue perfectly, including theirs, I can react better. I see. Why don't we read the book again? I went through the canon of Chekhov, Siegel and Vanya, and, you know, I barely remember the plots of each because for us it was about, like, who are you, who are you working on and what does it tell you about yourself? Which I think is a really resonant thing when you hear, you know, the director speak about why he won't play Vanya because it's too close, right? That That is, I think, a true thing for Chekhov work. But I don't necessarily think, if you're not theater literate and particularly deep into Chekhov, that you won't connect to this work. Because I surely didn't find my way in because I recalled the sort of analytics of either that play or any Chekhovian plays. So the, we should say this is linguistically, uh, the film is quite a challenge in the sense that, yes, the, briefly, there are some characters who speak English. There are a lot of characters who speak a lot of Japanese. There are, is at least one character who speaks Korean, maybe more. And there's one character who communicates almost entirely in sign language. So one of two Oscar nominees this year using sign language, the other one being Coda. So Tracy, again, I will take your temperature. What does the thermometer say about this movie? I actually really enjoyed it, despite its very long length. I did not realize when I started it at 10 o'clock at night one night that it was a three hour long movie and I was not going to get through it in one fell swoop. And at first I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this and and just enjoy it. I'm not going to enjoy it. Three hour long movies are too much, but I actually really did. And I think one of the first things that struck me is that about 45 minutes into the movie, you get sort of the opening credits of it. And so it's almost like that first 45 minutes is sort of a prologue setting up things. You know, it's it's very in-depth and it, it gives you a lot of rich detail that informs the rest of the movie. But then to put in those credits at 45 minutes was, I think Jonathan McPants called it a baller move. So, which really, I think it is. It's, it's a little audacious, but I liked so many parts about it. I like that there wasn't a huge soundtrack to it. If any, if you heard any music, there was a place in the scene where it was coming from, a record player, whatever. It made you able to focus on the characters. I liked the depth that we got from from the characters, both Misaki and Yosuku, to be able to see them sort of grow and progress and their relationship progress together. And frankly, I loved the multilingual aspect to it. So one of the characters, she's Taiwanese, so she speaks Mandarin. And then you had the Korean language, Korean sign language, and Japanese and English. And it was just, I felt that very aspect of it kept me paying attention even more. Yeah, James, it's very much a movie about talking and communicating. There's a kind of a Bergman quality to a lot of the scenes where the characters talk into the middle distance as opposed to directly to each other. Some of that is accentuated by the relationship between a driver in the front seat and a passenger, a person being driven in the back seat. But it's, it is very much, as Tracy's suggesting, a movie about how we talk and what we say when we talk. Yeah, I think that's true. And actually, I think that's the reason for the direct connection to Chekhov and Uncle Vanya, where you can easily sort of go through a Chekhov play and feel that it's just sort of all talk and it's endless talk. And then at the end of the play, it's not really resolved. But in this case, 
it's kind of like a lever, the theatrical performance, the veracity of the theatrical performance by the individual actors is really based on finding their truth and being able to express themselves. And we mentioned the signing, the young woman signing. I thought she was actually maybe the, the most expressive character in the film, even not knowing sign language and having to rely on the subtitles. The precision which with which she seemed to use signing and the expression on her face when she was doing it, it's like she was a catalyst for the other characters, at least two of the other characters, to begin to have more sort of sense of the significance of what this process was. And it appears to be the preparation of the play. And it's actually about the characters and their ability to get somewhere else that that out of their real lives, they were able to use the experience that was going on to actually grow personally. And I do sort of agree with this thing about the length, you know, having the uh, credits 40 minutes in, it's kind of like a bold statement. I agree. It's like, okay, you know, prepare to be here for a while. I think it could have been considerably shorter. But that said, I don't think I've seen a film in many years that really attempted to deal with the inner self that's locked away for one reason or another. And that was really satisfying. I mean, I do want to see this film again. You know, Tracy, one of the other thoughts that I had is there are a lot of ways in which this movie could have, I don't know, treaded too much across the terrain of obviousness. And I'll give you an example. There's a a scene where one of the characters goes to her hometown where something horrible has happened and where the thing that kind of shaped her life happens and kind of walks down into an actual hole, into a crater. And then after a scene there, walks back up having sort of interrogated her past and herself and seems to be changed and transformed. And it's really the pivotal moment of the movie for those two characters. I don't know. That could have been... That could have seemed like a pretty heavy-handed trope, but somehow or other doesn't. I'm not sure how the director pulls this off, but somehow or other, we don't feel like we're being over-instructed at that moment. And I think there's two things that come into play there. You know, neither, nobody in this, the entire movie is overly emotional, right? A lot of it is, I don't want to say deadpan, but it's very even-keeled, even in the emotional moments. It's sort of that quiet, understated, and even after the transformation happens, even though there's more emotion, you can feel that shift, you can feel that change very deeply, even the way it's played out is not overly so. There's still the subtlety to it. And it's sort of almost like a silent understanding more. And I think that's where it succeeds in not falling into the trope or the obvious or what you expect to have happen is because there is just that underlying, you know, heaviness, but heaviness than a little lightness, but still that heaviness is there. You know, they understand that full transformation may not happen. Right. And I think they even acknowledge that in the dialogue. Right. Although there's this rather enigmatic ending where we wonder exactly how much transformation has happened. It seems, Correct. Seems, that too. It seems like maybe a lot. And certainly somebody got a much more expensive hair appointment than she had been getting uh, <laughs> prior to that. I, I mean, some of the power of the exposition of the end of the film comes from the fact that it's so contemplative and seemingly slow at certain points. But it's that very contemplative quality of the characters who are enigmatic and you're not quite sure where they're going that makes the final explanations or the final directions of the story so powerful.
So it's the end of our show. Ileana Douglas has been so kind to take some time out from her life as an actor and uh, an Oscar voter. Come to it to talk to me about all this stuff. Yeah, there were some really interesting performances that maybe didn't make it into Best Picture movies. But I know you were struck by, as was I, the performance of Will Smith in King Richard. I ain't going to tell you again. Do not talk to them kids. Excuse me. They came onto my lawn. And somebody has got as hard as you work in them. They work as hard as they need to to stay off these streets. I'm in the champion raising business. I got a book about it about to come out soon. Maybe I'll give a copy to your daughter. Remind me which corner she waking on again? Get off my property. Yeah, just stop talking to my kids. Little booty hugging shorts. You need some bigger shorts. Yeah, I mean, a genuine category in Oscars should actually be the cumulative career award, you know, and so Will Smith delivers a wonderful performance in King Richard. Was the movie of a caliber of best picture, in my opinion, no, but he will be winning, in my opinion, for the cumulative roles that he has done and maybe for other years that he has been overlooked. Is that, you know, fair or right? I don't know, but I'm imagining that it's something that goes into the equation in Oscar voters' minds as you vote. Yeah, and I think that performance actually shows us a different side of the man, not Will Smith, but but Richard Williams. Great performance. Yeah, a a great performance, and it kind of repositions uh, the, the person that it's about. It is nominated for Best Picture. I put it in the category of CODA. These are both, I think, very nice, very strong movies. They are arguably kind of middle brow movies. They sort of affirm yeah. basic kinds of ideas without necessarily challenging us tremendously. But they're both movies that have moments of excellence and in the case of CODA, moments of beauty. If you can get through the audition scene at Berkeley College of Music without crying, there is something wrong with you. If you don't cry during that scene, you should see a psychiatrist. Uh, but I would agree that they maybe don't kind of rise to the level of what it takes to win Best but Picture. The, the issue is they now, you know, they now have 10 categories which right. is another decision they I find that very challenging by the time you get down to five or six using your standards of oh I've been watching movies for 30 years is this really an Oscar caliber movie you know who who knows right. but the perform you know the performances and lots of the performances this year there's you know, some of the movies I was I was a little surprised that Jennifer Hudson didn't get a nod for respect, even though, again, I would equate respect within the same realm as King Richard. She gives a great performance in that. However, another movie, you know, being the Ricardos that I did not think was a very good movie that garnered many, many awards. So that was, for me personally, that was a big surprise. Yeah. I mean, you know, if the night turns interesting, one reason it may, one way it may turn interesting is in the best supporting categories where I think Ariana DeBose for uh, her her Anita and West Side Story could be a very interesting winner. And then if Troy Kotzer from CODA were to win, were to take the stage uh, as a person using uh, ASL to communicate, I think we would see a moment we haven't seen at the Oscars before. And I think that's a very possible thing too. Uh, I think each of those people could win in their categories and they'd be a little bit less than 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 ordinary or a little bit more than ordinary. So what, oh, 
last, my last thought, Kyle, what, to me, already the three hosts, it's already, when you say we're going to have three hosts and there are three <laughs> women, it's like, I put my hand to my head like, oh, God, they already have three strikes. It was like, we didn't just trust one woman. You know, I mean, if I had to close my eyes, I would have said, just pick Wanda Sykes. Mm-hmm. But for God's sake, for me personally, that's my opinion, I would have said, just pick Wanda Sykes. It'll be great. Out of the box. Good, bad, and different. Yeah. But having three hosts with three different comic tones, I'm already nervous. Right. Have I <laughs> well, I, I, of course, I, I'm a little, I'm not sort of part of that world. So I do yeah. enjoy the Ricky Gervais type hosting moments where you know, the host makes yeah. everybody, everybody uncomfortable with something very impudent. And I think Wanda Sykes or Amy oh. Schumer or both are capable of that. I'm kind of hoping they won't be well behaved, but maybe they will just because everybody's on tenterhooks these days. Well, well the, the problem with the Oscars, is, you know, again, you can't, this is this, this excruciating line where, you want to be funny and irreverent and entertaining and politically correct and woke at the same time. Right. And so you walk this really horrible fine line of how far do you go? Then you go too far. Then you, so that's why I say I'm as an audience member, I'm already nervous. I feel like the microscope is on them as to whether they're not going to be, you know, it's like, again, the, it's just my personal feeling. I think they should have just picked one host. and Roll the dice. Yeah, roll the dice. All right, Ileana Douglas, so much fun to talk to you about this. Whenever we have you on, what we hear on social media is more Ileana. So if that's possible, we will try to give the audience what it wants. More Ileana Douglas. I'll be back. God damn it. I'll be back. <laughs> All right. We will definitely call you back. Thanks for doing this today. Okay. Much love. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington. Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.